Father God, we thank you for your presence here with us. Father, we thank you for your presence as we have worshipped and as we've come around communion today. And now, Father, we thank you for your word, which you have so graciously given us. We thank you, Lord, for the, um, the privilege it is, the responsibility it is to have such access to your revelation in our hands. And we ask, Father, that you are putting it in our hearts and you are working it out in our lives. So now, Lord, as we move on to look at another psalm in this series, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. And Father, the meditations of each one of our hearts as well would be pleasing to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. You are our Lord. Amen. Amen. Is it working, Steve? Excellent. Well, this is the eighth week in this series, Satisfy Us, Pursuing God Through the Psalms. As we are considering the different kinds of prayers that are presented to us in the Psalms, and they're all given to us so that we can deepen our relationship with our God. So I want to ask you, how is your prayer life? What does it look like? Do you have certain patterns in the way that you pray? Do you follow any guidelines in the way that you pray? You might have been familiar with some of these little uh, things, thanks Joe, that give you a format to follow when you pray. Acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, that's a familiar one. If you look at these models of prayer, you might notice that they all begin praising God, giving him the glory that he deserves. Now let me ask you, do you ever come to prayer just letting rip at God because he hasn't come through with the goods, what you've asked him for, because he's taking too long, because he's not living up to what you would expect from God? Do you do that? You know, often Christian prayer tends to be a little bit more polite, doesn't it? A little bit deferential. You know, we must begin properly praising God before we present our needs to him, don't we? And as Christians, good Christians will pray for everyone else's needs before they bring their own needs to God, won't they? Yes, we do that, don't we? Because God knows what we need before we even ask, doesn't he? And we humble ourselves. He's looking for humble servants who will come and lay their lives down for others in prayer. We need to remember who we are. But the psalmists, they remember who they are. They are the people of God. And as God's people, there is a very strong sense of entitlement when you read the psalms coming out loudly and proudly. So much so that over a third of all psalms are actually complaints. Did you know that? They are letting God know in no uncertain terms that things are not as they should be. They are less than impressed with God. <laughs> so I am talking about Psalms of Lament. Have you heard of them before? I'm going to keep talking about these Psalms for a couple of weeks because there are so many of them in the Psalter. So we're going to have some general teaching on lament each week and also focus on one particular Psalm. And today it is Psalm 13. Perhaps a simplest example of a lament, it has a complaint, a prayer, and then moves to praise. With the exception of two, Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, every lament, every complaint in the Psalms moves through and finishes with praise. So Psalms of a lament, they express these really strong negative feelings, but like all of the Psalms, they're very carefully composed. They follow a set accepted structure. And I find it helpful to think of lament like a, a frame, a picture frame, that provides a space, boundaries for expressing your pain. Another thing that a, a frame does is it allows pain to be expressed. It allows a place for um, trauma, for injustice, for disappointment 
to be shown off almost in a frame, like a picture frame. Because otherwise we might feel that we can't express these emotions when we come to worship God, particularly when worship is often so focused on praising God and resting in the reassurance of his love. Well, lament was a very, very significant part of Old Testament worship. It remains a significant part in Jewish worship, but it's often been neglected in Christian worship. And that's because the early thinkers of the church and the architects of our Western civilization they were very heavily influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek thought. If you know anything about them, they value the intellect, they value balance, they value virtue, value beauty. And in such a society, the poor and the undesirable, they're silenced in respectable society. They're pushed down. And they're either too weighed down by their burdens to be able to cry out or they are so far down that nobody even notices them when they cry. So it's been a tragic observation of history that it's only after atrocity that injustice is taken seriously. If we look at the 20th century with the horrors of World War, particularly the Holocaust, it was only after then that theologians really began to look at these psalms of lament take them seriously. In the 1970s and the 1980s, Christian pastoral carers, they adopted these psalms of lament to use them to help people as tools when they're dealing with grief and dealing with trauma. But it's only been in this century, since 9-11, since the uh, exposure of so much abuse in churches, since the hashtag MeToo, that preachers have been drawing on psalms of lament and including them in regular worship. There's also been a growing interest in Jewish roots of Christianity. Have you noticed that at all? Jesus was a Jew. The human authors of the Bible were almost all Jewish. And Jewish ways of thinking are not Greek ways of thinking. And they're certainly not 21st century Aussie ways of thinking, are they? And you might think, well, so what? Is this relevant? Well, of course it's relevant, isn't it? If we want to understand the Bible, if we want to know how to apply it to our lives, then we need to have a very good understanding of the context and the culture in which it was written. It would be kind of silly, um, ridiculous, actually, if I put up a piece of Indigenous art and I attempted to explain its relevance to all of you if I had no idea of the culture and the context in which it was created. So I want to give you today some very stereotypical contrasts between the Greek model of thinking, which much of our Western world has been built on, and the Jewish mindset. And these are good uh, understandings to have when we come to the Bible. So if we think of Greek, really stereotypical, it is the difference between listening to an expert stand up the front and deliver a lecture, where Jewish is more watching a discussion, a passionate discussion on a certain issue. Our Greek intellectual heritage wants us to look for um, convincing arguments, logical reasoning that reaches a definite conclusion. Whereas Jewish thought, it encourages us to sit in the tension. It encourages us to walk together. It's kind of like, well, this is how it is, but, you know, on the other hand, this, oh, but on the other hand, ah, that. You know, it's not having that real definite all the time. It's being comfortable sitting in the tension. Jews are the children of Israel. And Israel means struggle. 
I'm sure you know the story of Jacob. One who remains engaged in the wrestle until the blessing comes. So Jewish faith or biblical faith, it doesn't discard God when things don't match up. It presses in, it holds on, it wrestles it because it knows more than anything else God is worth holding on to. And we have nothing and we are nothing without God. That's the kind of faith that God rewards a faith that presses in, a faith that gets close, a faith that grasps for more of God even if it doesn't make sense, a faith that cares enough to want God, to trust him, to praise him regardless of the struggle. Is that how your faith looks, clinging to Christ no matter what? That's what the Psalms of Lament encourage us to do. I want to show you a clip And I am going to give you a trigger warning before we watch this clip. It was produced by the ABC 7.30 report and it aired in mid-2021. Thank you. So when that came on, on an August evening, five weeks into lockdown 489 of Victoria, that was pretty powerful on the ABC 7.30 report, no less. You might have noticed the lyrics, Psalm 23. I wasn't quite sure about the chorus, but it's 1 Thessalonians 4.17. When Christ returns, we will rise up and we will meet him in the air. What a powerful combination of lament and hope. Psalm 23 isn't normally characterised as a lament psalm. It's a psalm of trust, but it's probably the most often used at the time of trouble and death and funerals. So it's associated with grief. And when we think back of that time, 2021, it was a time of frustration and anger and grief and disappointment. And how many times did you find yourself just at a loss for words, unable to express the swirling emotions that you probably may not have even able been to identify? And you thought, well, what's even the point of saying anything about this? What difference does it make? We were locked down. We were talked down. We were ground down. Would it ever end. Do you remember the feeling? Oh yes. 
But drawing on God's holy word was a very, very powerful way to reach out to a hurting community at that time, helping us to express our pain, but encouraging us to hope for a better future. That's what Psalms of Lament do. I'm going to ask Clarissa if she'll come and read to us Psalm 13 today. I've asked Clarissa because I've been encouraged by her testimony this year as she's had times of waiting and longing. Thanks, Clarissa. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, boy, hang on. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my ebony triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my ebony will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall but I trust in your unfailing love my heart rejoices in your salvation I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me thank you Clarissa and thank you Clarissa and thank you to so many others of you for the way that you share your faith when you are going through hard times Did you notice in that psalm, how long, how long, how long, how long? Yeah? And I look around this room and I know that there are many, many people where that prayer would ring true. How long, Lord? How long will I have to live with this pain, this disappointment? How long will I have to live with this grief, this this emptiness, this anxiety, depression, the rejection, fear, loneliness? Do I need to keep going on? How long until my loved ones will come to know you, Lord? How long do I have to go through hard stuff? Now, I want you to look at this list that we're going to put up on the screen now and see what word jumps out at you. And if there is one word there in particular, just just pick one, that you have wrestled how long, Lord? I'm going to give you the count of three. I want you to shout it out in a loud voice, okay? Everyone, got your word? Ready? One, two, three. The collecting suffering in this room, it's enormous, isn't it? But, you know, we've got it good in Australia, haven't we? Can you imagine what it would be like to be a displaced person in a refugee camp? Can you imagine what it would be like to be a young Thai girl in a brothel? Can you imagine what it would be like to be tortured, imprisoned for your faith? But does thinking of them and the very difficult things that others are going through, does that make your daily life easier? If I gave you a choice today, if I said to you, pick one, and you've got to pick one, would you choose, A, to have your house washed away in a one in 100 year flood, or two, to have a dripping tap every single night? Okay, how about this one? Would you, what would you find easier to live with? Having a leg amputated or stubbing a toe every single day? Now, you might notice I didn't give an end point for either of those little annoyances, did I? But they are rather ridiculous choices, aren't they? Life is not like we go up to some cosmic counter and we pick and choose what options we want to deal with. It's not like online shopping where you tick what you want and it gets delivered to your door most of the time. 
The Bible tells us that it is God who is sovereign over all. You know, we might make our choices and build things, but unless the Lord wills it, we build and we choose in vain. God is the one who causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. But on the other hand, here's this Jewish thinking, the Bible is also pretty clear that we do have choices, don't we? The Bible says, make good choices and you will live well. Bad choices do have consequences, don't they? It's not just biblical wisdom that says that. It's this whole idea of covenant that drives much of biblical theology. If you obey, there will be blessing. If you disobey, there are curses. And I'm sure each one of us can look back on our lives and see where that has been true for us in the choices we have made. But on the other hand, we know there are no guarantees, don't we? You know, we are told on a natural level, make healthy choices to live longer. Well, Simon's grandfather, I'm told, used to really enjoy eating a good slab of full-fat salted butter. And he lived to a ripe old age. But then I have a friend who pursued a very healthy vegan organic lifestyle and she died of cancer at 40. It just doesn't make sense. And sometimes... We get to feeling, well, it is what it is. Do we just have to grin and bear this life? Maybe it is a case of dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest. I don't know. Don't you think it's understandable why some people would just think there's no point to this life anyhow? That's what we call nihilism. But, you know, at least we could be cheerful in that, can't we? We can enjoy it until we get to the end of this no point. We don't have to give way to despair. We could stick a geranium in our hat. We can turn those lemons into lemonade, which is all well and good until the flower in your hat wilts and you run out of sugar for your lemonade. And then you're back saying, how much longer is this going to go on for? And then I think we start wondering sometimes, does God even notice what I'm going through? Does he know when it feels like I just can't keep going? Does he know when I've got another night of lying awake with my thoughts going around and around in my head and then I wake up in the morning and I feel that that dull ache is still there. It hasn't gone away. There are many days, would you agree, we'd be quite happy for Jesus to return. Yeah. We are so over the work, eat, sleep, repeat, work, eat, sleep, repeat. It's like you're trying hard and you're trying and you're trying and you never seem to get anywhere stop the world, I want to get off it, yeah? Am I the only one who thinks these things? Is it okay for me to say them in church, to admit this in church? Yeah, all of creation is groaning. We're all looking for relief and I don't think anyone is impressed by happy clappies with their head in the the sand, do you? We need to be relevant, we need to be real but it's so important that as a church, as Christians, we present some answers to these wrestles and these struggles. What does God, what does the Bible, how do they answer this ache inside of us? Well, the simple answer is Jesus. Yeah. Repent, be baptised and onwards we go to eternal glory. Hallelujah. But I'm a little bit guilty because I left out the bit through suffering, which is nothing in comparison to the glory that comes. Guilty. Do you notice when Clarissa read Psalm 13, there is no mention of sin and confession and guilt in that psalm. There's accusation against the enemies, which is fair fair enough. 
there's worse maybe, accusation against God. Did you notice? Accusing God of not living up, of hiding from his responsibilities intentionally. Now that's pretty intense, wouldn't you say? And maybe we might want to call David to account. We might want to say, hey, David, maybe there's a little bit of pride going on with you. Maybe you need to examine your heart. Maybe you need to repent of being mad at God. And then maybe you'll experience God's presence with you. Confess your sins and you will be healed. We know what to do with guilt, don't we? We need to repent. We need to find our forgiveness in Christ. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an immediate solution and a direct path forward from guilt. Repent, God will hear from heaven and heal our land. If we think about our Christian spirituality, it is marked by humility. It's marked by always acknowledging that God is right. When you read the Psalms of Lament, they don't accept that all that easily. Psalm 13, it's not full of confession, but it shows us what it looks like to have a face-to-face relationship with God. And that's pretty incredible when you think about it, isn't it? Face-to-face with the Almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth, and letting him know when he's not living up to that reputation. There's nothing at all that is superficial about this relationship. There is nothing that's sycophantic about this relationship. There is nothing restrictive, there's nothing repressive, and there's nothing dismissive in the way the psalmist relates to God. How often, though, do we say, well, it's not worth complaining because nobody cares anyhow? So you keep your complaints to yourself. Because you can't trust the response of people that you share them with. Stuff's not right at work, but you don't complain unless you get in trouble for it. Stuff's not right in your relationships, but you keep quiet in case there are repercussions that you don't like. Stuff's not right in your life, but you don't complain because you might be belittled, you might be brushed aside, you might be moralised. Well, Psalm 13 encourages us to have complete freedom to bring all of our concerns and our complaints to God asking, when exactly will he come through for us? How long? Well, the reality is many of our trials are very short-lived, aren't they? One hour with a miserable baby can seem like it will never, ever end. But people my age will say, well, before you know it, the kid will be 20 and this will all be well and truly behind you. Well, maybe that's true, but maybe in the moment that is not the thing to say to a distraught mother because maybe in that moment both the mother and the child don't think they'll make it to the next moment, let alone be able to look 20 years down the track. When we are up to our eyeballs in the misery, it is very difficult to be able to see properly, isn't it? But there is comfort in knowing that others see us. That's why we run a group here called Mums and Munchkins, so that after a night in the trenches with kids who are sick or feral, mums and carers can come in and they can have a cup of tea and they can know that everyone else can see the struggles that they are going through and they can identify with that. Well, after David's haunted, how long, how long, how long, how long in Psalm 13, the first thing he asks of God in verse 3 is for God to look Look at me, God. I want you to see what I am going through. 
Whenever I think of God looking and seeing, it reminds me of Hagar in Genesis. Hagar, if ever a woman was manipulated, was abused, was rejected, it was Hagar. And she was sitting in the wilderness crying and God saw her. God comforted her in her deep suffering and he gave her the incredible honour of being the only person in the Bible to name God. And you know what she called him? She said, you are El Roy. You are the God who sees me. So David begs God to look at him. And the next thing he says is, answer me. But you might notice there actually isn't an answer provided to his how long question in Psalm 13. We have to go further into God's word for that. Perspective, it's a lot easier to have when your eyes aren't full of tears, isn't it? When you can see clearly. And that's one of the things that David asks for in verse 4. He says, Lord, give light to my eyes unless I sleep in death and my enemy will have won. Psalm 119 verse 105 says that God's word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. I think I got that around the wrong way. Whichever way it is, God's word is our light, isn't it? There is an obvious answer in the Bible to the question of how long. Do you know what that answer is? Soon. Hmm. Soon. For those who trust in God, there is hope. There is a definite end to this life and there is a glorious eternity beyond soon. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it? But when you think of the whole Bible, there are very long periods of waiting in the Bible's history. There are decades, there are centuries between the stories of God intervening on behalf of his people. But we've had 2,000 years. I think that's the longest stretch so far. How long, God, until we meet Jesus in the air? How long? Will you forget us forever? Even if a mother could forget her child. God will never forget his children. We are carved into the palm of his hand. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Even when storms rage, when floods rise and fires blaze, God will be with us, never abandoning us and bringing us into safe harbour. It's a unchangeable scientific fact that no matter how rough the weather is down here, no matter how dark and stormy it may be, the sun shines on unabated above it all, doesn't it? You know, Psalm 103 verse 11 says, higher than the heavens are above the earth. That is how great God's love is for his children. So whether or not we can see the rays breaking through the clouds on a stormy day, it doesn't change the reality and the power of the sun it doesn't change the reality and the power of God's love for us. But on the other hand, how long, Lord, will you hide your face from me? Have you heard the expression, the dark night of the cross? It comes from a poem written in the 16th century by, sorry, the dark night of the soul, but written by St. John of the Cross. So many Christians have seasons in life where God seems distant where you can't see his face, you can't feel his love, when darkness seems to hide his face. 
But then Paul reassures us in Romans 8, doesn't he? Romans 8, 38 and 39, that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's love that is for us in Jesus Christ. But if you have moments, if you have days, if you have years of not feeling God's love for you, don't give up on God. He loves you. Nothing is truer. It doesn't depend on our emotions and how we feel. It depends on God and his unfailing love. It never, ever fails. If you're in that spot right now, hang on. Keep a hold because a blessing will come for you. Mother Teresa is someone who understood this darkness. In the slums where she worked for decades... Her letters and her prayers, after she, which were published after she died, they revealed that she never really felt personally the love of God for her. And she attributed her suffering to identifying with Christ as he felt forsaken on the cross. She also said that through her suffering, a deeper empathy developed so that she was able to um, share love with others. She was driven to love the unlovable. Maybe you've noticed in the trials that you experience that it enables you to minister to others. Maybe your sufferings equip you differently to be able to share God's love. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1 verses 4 and 5 says there that God comforts us so that when we are comforted, we can share that comfort with others around about us. We know God's not slow in keeping his promises, don't we? We know that he's just tarrying so that more will come to repentance. But in the meantime, enemies are making it difficult for us to keep going, aren't they? What's a child of God to do? Well, James 1-2 tells us to consider it all joy when we come up against trials because it's producing perseverance in us. We will grow to maturity. So when we're going through suffering and we're hanging on, notice the growth in your maturity. Notice the fruit of the Spirit that's becoming more evident in your life. Love, joy, peace, pa- patience. How long, Lord, how long am I going to wrestle with these thoughts? When the wrestle gets intense, we know we need to take those thoughts captive, don't we? We make them obedient to the love of Christ. His grace is sufficient for us. But there are moments when the panic rises for all of us, aren't there? There are moments when we're not sure if we can keep going. You know, we might think, well, God got me through today, but what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow if things fall apart? Help me, God. I need you to help me. Otherwise, my enemy's going to win. And that's not going to be good, is it? How long, Lord, will that enemy triumph over me? Psalm 13 doesn't ask why. It doesn't ask why am I suffering. And that's a really huge question, isn't it? It's a huge accusation that's thrown against us as Christians. It's called the problem of theodicy. If your God is all-powerful and your God is all-good, well, then why is there so much suffering in this world? Have you got an answer for that? Because I'm sure you will be asked it if you haven't been already. But I wonder, do we have a definitive answer? Well, yes, we live in a broken world, don't we? It's the consequences of sin. The wisdom of Proverbs and the covenant, they tell us that stuff happens in this world when things are not in order. But to answer that personal question of why am I suffering... Why am I still suffering? When I have confessed my sin, I am looking to God, but I'm still suffering. 
Well, Job answers that question, doesn't he? Addresses that questioning. You read the book of Job and we as the readers, we know the backstory. We know what's going on with the accuser and why he's doing what he is doing. But Job is never, ever given the reason for his suffering. What God does give Job is light for his eyes. God reveals himself to Job. And once Job gets a better picture of how majestic God is, he confesses his lack of trust. He worships God as the only one with the power to save him. He doesn't need to know why. Ultimately, we're not looking for the reason why. We're looking for a God who sees us, a God who notices us, a God who cares enough to act and who will make all things new. But how long, Lord? Psalm 13 is pretty confronting, isn't it? It resonates. And I wonder if there's anyone in this room who can honestly say they have never wrestled with this question of how long, Lord? I was working on the message and I was thinking, this is actually really going down the gurgler today and I'm going to take everyone with me down this how long, how long, how long. I'm meant to use God's word to encourage you, aren't I? And here we go, down, down, down. Will it ever come to an end? You might be looking at the clock and thinking that too. But I've got good news for you. It is coming to an end. Verse 5, but... But, what a powerful little word that is. It stops the torrent of torment in this psalm. And it does it with such a jolt. You know, there is no explanation. There is no evidence in the form of, thank you, God, for rescuing me. One moment, the enemy is laughing. The next moment, the psalmist is rejoicing in God. I wonder, is he quickly switching to a bit of praise because he feels guilty for all of his negative talk that's been going on? Do you ever do that? The psalmist says, but I trust trust. I wonder if there is a deeper place of worship than trust. Trusting God with our lives. You know, I can love without trusting, but I cannot trust without knowing that I am loved. I trust, I have confidence that God loves me and God is for me. Trust It's the confidence to bring all of my concerns to God and know that God will look. He will answer. His love is unfailing and rejoicing will come. Trusting God is an act of defiance against any other force that wants to influence us and put us down. Because trust is the confidence in the power of God to act and to save. He will do it. The constant story of God is that he always answers those who cry out to him. You read the Bible. The rejected Hagar, she cried out. The enslaved Israelites, they cried out. Moses cried out. The oppressed tribes cried out. The threatened nation cried out. Israel in exile cried out. And every time God heard and God answered, he stepped in to save his people. All humanity, we all groan. We all cry out. But you know, even before we knew what we were crying about, even before we knew who could save us, God acted. He sent his son. He sent Jesus who suffered the greatest injustice of all. He sent the perfect one who knew exactly what he was going to have to endure. He knew why he was going to have to suffer 
He even knew how long the suffering would last for. He did it willingly. And yet on that cross, when he hung there in agony, the words of a psalm of lament were cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Christ, God cries out against all suffering. In Christ, God saw and he answered our pain once and for all. He demonstrated the incomprehensible extent of his unfailing love. So we can rejoice in his salvation. We can know that when the darkness finally comes to an end, there is joy waiting. And however long that wait may be, we can share the confidence of the psalmist who says, I will see his goodness in the land of the living. Psalm 13 is a gift to us. It provides a frame, a safe place to contain our worries and our complaints, a safe place to bring those complaints to God who sees us, to God who answers us, to God who will bring light to our eyes. Lament is a gift that we should accept and we should use it in our lives to help us grow in our faith, to help us get closer to our God, to call on him and know that he will save us and he will shine through us. As I finish today, I'm going to ask Melinda and Lauren to come and we're going to present Psalm 13 in a musical format for you. It's a space for you just to sit and reflect on what's been delivered from here this morning, what God might have been saying to you, to ask God to look at what's going on in your heart, to ask him to bring you to a place of knowing his love, knowing his salvation, knowing his goodness. So you may remain seated while we sing this. And after we've sung it, we'll ask the worship team to come back and we will sing the blessing together, asking God to turn his face towards us. Till our thirsty souls are 
Tell 